our repentance has never been what our repentance should be. And Jesus is a complete Savior. Even His baptism was for us in our place, repenting as if He needed to, but as we should. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Why is a proper understanding of the public ministry of Jesus Christ important for us as Christians today? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue in the New Testament Gospels, here in Tom's series titled, A Survey of the Life of Christ. For three and a half years, Jesus went from town to town in Palestine, preaching and teaching the gospel that man must repent of his sin and put his trust in Christ as the only way of salvation. Jesus also validated his claims by performing many miracles throughout the land. The same Jesus that we as Christians hope in and indeed believe in for salvation is the same Jesus that we must fix our eyes upon here in this life. Do you have that hope, friend? Let's join Tom Pennington now, here on The Word Unleashed. Let's begin by considering when his ministry began, the beginning of his ministry. There are really three major biblical reference points. The first of them is in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, where we're told that it was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar that Jesus began his ministry. Now, Tiberius Caesar's rule had two beginnings— he became sole ruler at his father's death. So if you add 15 years to that, that brings you to around 28, 29 AD. But he was also co-regent with his father, and so if you add that date plus 15 years, you end up with around 26, 27 AD. And as you'll see in a moment, the earlier date is the more likely date. A second reference to Jesus' ministry is we're told in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, that he was about 30 years of age. That probably means that he was somewhere between 28 years of age and 32. About 30 would seem to imply that range. If Jesus was born in the year 5 B.C. or around that, as we've argued, because we know when Herod the Great died, and we know that Jesus was born before Herod the Great died in the year 4 B.C., so if you do the math, then that means Jesus was about 30 years of age in the year 26 A.D. A third reference point is the remodeling of the temple. Forty-six years of the remodeling of Herod's temple, that's what we learn in John chapter 2 and verse 20. It wasn't complete until many years later. In fact, it really wasn't complete until just before it was destroyed in 70 A.D. But this statement about the 46 years it had been being remodeled was made at the first Passover of Jesus' ministry. Herod began that work somewhere around 20 to 19 B.C. If you add 46 years to that, you end up in that 26-27 range. So you can see that the major time references that the New Testament gives us for when Jesus began his ministry all lead us to the same conclusion. What about the length of his ministry? How long did Jesus minister? Well, there are a variety of 
views ranging, believe it or not, there are, there are a couple people who argue that it was only a year long, others who would say no, it was four years, but by far the most widely held view based on the biblical evidence is a little over three years, and that is primarily based on the Apostle John's chronology. The Apostle John identifies at least three Passovers that occurred during Jesus' ministry, and you can look those up later. Now, if you take that in mind, then it leaves us with a ministry of about three and a half years. There were four basic periods to Jesus' ministry, and I'm going to fill these out a little bit, but the first period was a period of just several months from the summer of 26 AD to the first Passover, the spring, from the baptism of Christ to his first Passover. The second period was a first full year of ministry between Passovers, and it ended with a Passover that's not in the biblical record. Period three was the second full year between Passovers, which ended with the Passover mentioned in John 6-4. And then the final period was the last year of our Lord's life and ministry, which ended, of course, with the Passover of his death. So those are the the periods. So think of a half year first. You know, we think three and a half years. You think three years and then a half. But really, it worked the other way around if you figure on Passovers. It was a half year and then a full year, a second full year, and a third full year. That was Jesus' ministry. Now, just uh, then putting together a sort of summary timeline of the life and ministry of Jesus, it would look something like this. And again, this is not Thus saith the Lord, this is the best we can factor in based on the evidence that we've seen. Jesus was born somewhere before the death of Herod, probably in 5 or 6 B.C., and the death of Herod the Great came in April of 4 B.C. You do the math we just talked about in terms of the start of his ministry, you end up with a, a beginning of his ministry in 26 A.D., and, um, and then you have it unfold from there. That brings the death of Christ and Um, to the year 30 A.D. If all of this is right, then it brings us to the death of Christ in 30 A.D. We know that it had to be in either 30 or 33 A.D. because Passover only fell the way it's recorded in the biblical record in those two years during the span of Jesus' life and ministry. So it had to be 30 or 33. Based on the evidence, it appears to point to the year 30. If that's true, then April, the Passion Week, would have been in April, and specifically in the year 30 A.D., the crucifixion would have been on April 7th, Friday, April 7th, and the resurrection on Sunday, April 9th. May would have been the ascension, 40 days after the resurrection, and also in May, Pentecost, 50 days after the Feast of Passover. So that's how, as best we can figure, it unfolds. So Jesus' ministry, three and a half years, likely began in the summer of 26 A.D. Now let me just say that I'm going to put a lot of things up on slides that I'm not even going to mention. Don't be, don't be frightened by that. I want you to have this material later if you want to go back and look at it. I'm just going to touch some highlights that I think are important to sort of get your arms around the ministry of Jesus. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Tonight is not primarily meant to be devotional. Tonight is meant to give you some hooks so that as you come back and look at the gospel records, you understand how those things fit into the life and ministry of our Lord. And I hope it will also be encouraging and uplifting. But my, my, my primary purpose 
is to help you understand what you're reading in the gospel record and how it fits together in the life and ministry of Christ. So let's look then at the public ministry of Jesus. The public ministry of Jesus. The circumstances of Jesus' ministry begin really with John, with John the baptizer. In John chapter, excuse me, in Luke chapter 3, turn there with me for a moment, Luke chapter 3, and you'll notice in verse 1, we read, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region there in, in the same area, it was during verse 2 in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. John came, he would have been about 30 years of age, and he was the first prophet. Think of this, John the Baptist was the first prophet for over 400 years. God had not revealed anything for 400 years, and John shows up. John's message was straightforward. He said the Messiah and his kingdom are about, they're about to arrive. Repent and prepare for his coming and be baptized as a sign that you have repented and are awaiting the arrival of Messiah. In fact, John's baptism was a proselyte baptism. You know what that means? That means he was saying to Jewish people, it's as if you're not even Jewish. You don't even deserve to be a part of Messiah's kingdom. You need to enter in in a fresh way. You need to repent and become truly Jewish and really come to know and prepare your heart for the Messiah. This was his message. John's baptism was commanded And it was an outward sign of true repentance in the heart. And the people responded. It's incredible when you read the gospel records. In Matthew chapter 3, we read, Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Luke 3.15 says the people were in a state of expectation and were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether or not he was the Messiah. So there was this growing sense of expectation. Into that comes our Lord. Now I think you already have a pretty good idea of the map of the first century first century Palestine, but just to highlight it for you, you understand the green area here on the map is Judea primarily and Samaria, Judea in the south, and you can see Jerusalem, Bethlehem there on the map, and then you have Galilee, the yellow area up around the Sea of Galilee, and then there are some mixed areas across the Jordan River. With that in mind, I want us to walk briefly through Jesus' ministry. Just to warn you, we're going to spend a a good bit of time here, but I really want to get to where the Gospels get, and that is to the Passion Week. So I'm just going to really uh, run past some of the structure of, of Jesus' life and ministry, but I do want to touch on some things. As I said, there's period one, which is the half year. begins in the summer of 26 A.D. lightly, likely, and runs to the Passover of 27 A.D., about somewhere between six to eight months. And a major description of this period is it's the beginning of his public life and ministry, and it is at this point a time of relative obscurity for Jesus. As you know, this period begins with his baptism, sometime probably in the summer of 
26, the late summer. This baptism is recorded in three of the Gospels, and Jesus explains the basic reason for his baptism in Matthew 3.15. Jesus said to John, you remember, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. But specifically, in what way was Jesus fulfilling all righteousness? Well, several reasons have been suggested. Personally, I I tend to land on the idea of vicarious repentance. In other words, Jesus didn't need to repent. Jesus didn't need to do have a change of heart that was that was illustrated by baptism. So why would he do it? Why would he be baptized by a proselyte baptism into by the by John the baptizer? I think it was for us. It was for the people then. It was because our repentance has never been what our repentance should be. And Jesus is a complete Savior. Even His baptism was for us in our place. Repenting as if He needed to, but as we should. That's followed immediately, as you know, by his temptation in the fall of 26. Immediately after his baptism, for a period of 40 days, this was something initiated by God. Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 4, 1 says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why? To make clear Jesus' identity, his power, his authority over Satan and his absolute purity. I wish I had time to develop for you the contrast between Adam in the Garden of Eden, having one prohibition and failing, and Jesus in the Judean wilderness, having nothing and coming out victorious. That's the contrast we're supposed to see. The lessons for us is that temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. Victory over temptation, however, is found only in Christ. Hebrews 2.18 says, Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Listen, your only hope, my only hope in temptation is Jesus Christ. What did he say in John 15? Without me you can do nothing. Nothing. Now, after the temptation, of course, his ministry begins. Sometime in the winter, probably, the early part of 27 A.D., only the Apostle John records the events of the first few weeks and months of Jesus' ministry. In fact, John 1, verses 19 through 2.11, seems to be a careful record of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. It starts, turn there for a moment, John chapter 1. It starts with John's answer to a committee of the Sanhedrin. And he says, listen, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just announcing the Messiah. I'm baptizing under the authority of the one coming. But what I want you to see is here in this text, you have, you have John's official statement made under a self-imposed oath concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, here's his testimony, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes someone who has a higher rank than I. And this is, this is amazing, for he existed before me. Wait a minute. How can that be? John was conceived six months before Christ was conceived. He's clearly highlighting the reality that Jesus existed before he took on human flesh. And then he says, verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This was John's testimony. It's his heart. Jesus then, in following that up, begins to gather his first disciples. They're mentioned specifically because they would become later the apostles. Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and possibly James are all part of that first group of John the Baptist disciples who began to follow Jesus. Shortly thereafter, Jesus performs his first public miracle. You remember at the wedding in Cana, the water to wine, he demonstrates his deity for the first time. It was about six days after his interview, uh, John's interview with the committee from the Sanhedrin that Jesus does this. So it's very early in his public ministry. Now, God has performed miracles directly throughout human history. God is a miracle-working God. We see it every time a person comes to genuine faith. That is a divine miracle of grace. But if you retrace redemptive history, there have only been three periods in redemptive history when God has given men the capacity to work miracles. There's the period of Moses, of course, and a number of miracles that unfold in his life and ministry. There's the period of Elijah and Elisha, again, a number of miracles. And the third period is during Christ and his apostles. So why did God in those periods of time give men the capacity to work miracles? They're clustered. The miracles are clustered in those three time periods. Why is that? Because miracles vindicated the person's claims concerning himself and his ministry. And the same was true for Jesus. Listen to Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man attested to you by God. How? With miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. God used the miracles of Christ. Christ didn't come to work miracles. He came to preach. He said that himself. But he performed miracles as the validation of his claims and of his teaching and preaching and revelatory ministry. This first period of Jesus' ministry ends with his going to Jerusalem for Passover number one. That brings us to period number two, and it runs from Passover in 27 AD to Passover in 28 AD. This is his first full year of public ministry. He first ministers in Judea for about eight months and then begins his Galilean ministry, which will actually last 18 months. This is a time of increasing popularity and favor with the people. During that 
initial ministry in Judea, some of the famous events are the cleansing of the temple, the first cleansing of the temple during the Passover season, a claim of his messianic authority, the interview with Nicodemus, and his ministry with John the Baptist. But shortly thereafter, four months into the second year, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. I'm sorry, at the final four months of this last year, he begins his Galilean ministry, which lasts for a period of 18 months. And something very significant occurs at the beginning of that. You remember, he goes back to Nazareth, and he's rejected there. And what does he do in response to that rejection? He moves his ministry headquarters, he relocates his ministry headquarters to Capernaum, where it would be the rest of his ministry. And there, he connects with the first four disciples, those who become those into whom he would pour his life. Now, it's important to understand that it's not like when Jesus showed up and began his public ministry, he immediately identified the 12 and said, okay, you, you, you 12 come with me. It didn't happen like that. There were stages of Christ's interaction with the apostles. There's, first of all, their conversion when they come to acknowledge him as Messiah. And then they traveled with him and he taught them for a while. And they returned to their jobs and homes. And then he comes back to them and engages them in ministry, short-term ministry, where they, they travel throughout Galilee and other areas. And eventually, he comes to them and requires them to leave their secular employment to follow him exclusively. This was the cycle. In fact, it's possible that the twelve were only with Jesus day and night, seven days a week, for about a year and a half to maybe two years of his ministry. We'll see when that happens in just a minute. This was also a time, this first full year of his ministry, was a time of public ministries, his first preaching tour of Galilee with the four disciples, and the call of Matthew. This year ends with Jesus going to Jerusalem for Passover number two. It's either not in the biblical record or it's John 5, 1. That brings us to period three, Passover 28 AD to Passover 29 AD. This is his second full year of public ministry. And this was the time when he had the great Galilean ministry. The entire year was his his ministry in Galilee, and it was a time of immense popularity with the people. Some of those huge crowds gather during this year of his ministry. But the year really begins with a confrontation with the Pharisees. They have been sort of watching and wary. They have tolerated Jesus, but as his popularity grows they begin to see a problem, and they begin to confront Jesus, and Jesus confronts them. It usually comes over the issue of the Sabbath and how it's to be kept. It was in this period that Jesus chose the 12 apostles. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, A Survey of the Life of Christ. Tom will have part four for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, Tom, on the subject of miracles found in the life of Christ, what was their primary purpose? You know, Bill, they were crucial in God's purpose because Jesus' miracles prove that he was everything he claimed to be and that his teaching was, in fact, the very words of God. Like Moses and the Old Testament prophets, 
the primary purpose of Jesus' miracle-working ministry was to confirm his credentials as one who was sent by God to speak the very words of God. Jesus worked countless miracles, and certainly part of that was to, was to show compassion on those who had been afflicted with various diseases. But most of all, it was to validate his claims that he was, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who'd been sent by God himself. As John puts it at the end of his gospel, all the things that Jesus did that he recorded in his letter were to convince us that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 